Jaring Cacophony tells you that you're listening to the Power of Three podcast. The podcast that's like a stitch in time or something or nothing or whatever. Anyway, we're Doctor Who fans who like to go through the show in all forms and eras and have a laugh as we do it, whether we're having public conversations, reviewing new episodes or releases, turning the clock back to listen to or watch older TV shows or Big Finish episodes, or interviewing people who've been involved with the latest releases from Big Finish, the BBC, or whatever. I'm Kenny Smith, and I am not alone. With me, it's the man who's never, ever, ever been called Ravy Davy Gravy. It's David Steele. Hello. I was once called Wavy Davy for a few weeks, off the back of Vic Reeves. Remember, remember, it was one of Bob Mortimer's characters on Vic Reeves' Big Night Out, and he sellotaped down his eyelids and had a cat's sweatshirt and a baseball cap. See ya! Hi, everyone! And um, one of my mm-hmm. colleagues called me Wavy Davy just because it was it was it was contemporaneous. It was Vic Reeves was was in the zeitgeist thirty years ago. So anyway, yes. Hello, listeners. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us. What are we talking about today, then, Kenny? Well, Dave, before we go any further, today you're actually cosplaying, and people obviously at home won't be able to see this. But the fact is, you look like you're Commander Cisco <laughs> on Deep Space Nine with a grey <laughs> shoulder area to your top yeah. with a black jumper underneath. Yes. Yeah, this this is purely accidental. This is a jumper that I got one Christmas a few years ago, and I had I had thought that myself in the past. Actually, it did look a bit um a bit later season, next generation or, or DS Nine. Yeah, I suppose I am actually. Who's your favourite character in DS Nine? I always really liked Odo. I must admit, I think Odo was great fun. Um, but right. I suppose I really should say it is everybody's favourite Dabble girl, Lita because I love Chase Masterson and she is a very, very warm, friendly, lovely human being. I think I'd stop watching at the time she was in it. I always liked, I liked Quark and I liked Jadzia and I liked Cisco himself and I liked, I liked O'Brien and I liked Kieran Reese. I liked everyone. Anyway, so yes, but we're not talking about DS9. Yes, we're talking about something else involving the number nine. See how I did there seamlessly. Last week, listeners, you will have heard how we discussed the making of one of the stories in the latest Ninth Doctor box set from Big Finish, The Curse of Lady Macbeth. Today, myself and Dave are actually going to go through it story by story and share our thoughts on how much we enjoyed it. Well, I know I enjoyed it. I don't know how much Dave did or not. So we'll find out very, very shortly. Dave, this is a rather, quite a nice story link to this one with Lost Warriors, which is with a wonderful cover as well. Let's discuss the cover before we go any further. Yes, I have the box set in front of me as we speak. Can I see it without my reading glasses? Not very well, let's be honest. Let's hold it at this. Well, let's look at the pictures then. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, it comes a cracker. I mean, I do I do pity the, the various designers that have to do Ninth Doctor covers because I think there's only like five photographs of Chris in costume <laughs> for Doctor, which they keep having to reuse. But um, yeah, front and center of the cover, this one, we've got the new style Cyberman, which appears in the third story, which we'll talk about. And I'm guessing that the guys back in the background on the left, they're prob- the sort of robotic-looking guy. That's probably one of the, the kids that ran about and caused all the trouble in the first story. And mm-hmm. on the, the right-hand side, I can't really see too clearly. Who's that? I think it's the Macbeths. Right. I see. Cool. This is yes, the thing, listeners. With old age, you know, I've got my contact lens in today. If I didn't have them in, I'd be able to peer at it and be able to see. But as a, as a canny, it's a st- canny is a Scottish word for can't, as in <laughs> not able to. I had to um, define the term blanco to someone earlier oh, on today. No. 
<laughs> I used that in a, in a group chat with a with a with a very famous Doctor Who writer, Clang. Won't mention his name, and I described someone else as a blanco and had to explain what that meant. So there we go. So yeah. How did you define it out of interest? I just said someone that doesn't have much of a personality, someone who's a bit nondescript, a bit of a non-entity. Good description. That works. That works. I think so. So let's get underway with talking about this box set. Let's talk about story 3.1, The Hunting Season by James Kettle, where Dewberry Hall is under siege as aliens maraud through the estate. It's a frightful business. And as Lord Hawthorne battles the fleshkin, the Doctor finds new friends below stairs. Can he convince the household to unite to save itself? Dave, how did you enjoy this one? It's quite a, quite an unusual choice, I thought, for a box set opener. Yes, it was. You could argue it was slightly maybe low key. I mean, I should say overall, out of the out of the three Ninth Doctor sets so far, and I think on first listen, this is one I enjoyed the most. We talked before about I found the first set a bit hmm. And the second one, there's a couple of points I thought were a bit ordinary, but I re- every story on this I thought was, was fantastic in the first listen. So, I, yeah, I, I liked it a lot. I think it's an obvious sort of story for them to do because Christopher Eccleston's obviously talked about his, his background quite a lot. And I think there's a, maybe a perception he has a bit of a chip on his shoulder about the class system in Britain. So it wasn't surprised that they decided to do a story that touched on such things. But I thought it was really, really good. An amazing cast. You know, obviously they got Annette Badland who had appeared opposite Chris in a couple of TV episodes. So that was, you know, a clever thing to do. Don Gillet, who'd been in um, the Runaway Bride on telly. Good to have him back. He was playing an utter bastard. <laughs> um, no, it was it was great. I mean, there was, um, I don't want to say too much without, you know, I feel I'm, I'm worried if I say too much, it would dominate the conversation. It would remove anything that you might have to say. So I, I enjoyed it. I think it's an obvious one to do because the perception of the Ninth Doctor with his sort of, you know, lots of planets of a north, sort of north of England accent means that it's quite a contrast to the usual sort of received pronunciation time lord stuff that, you know, Christopher Epperson himself talked about endlessly. So I think it's an obvious one to do. It, as you say, as an opener, it was quite low key. It kind of almost like, you know, almost like it sort of very slowly sort of talked you and seduced you into the box set. It was, it was very, yeah, it was very good. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's a wonderful thing to get the doctor, this doctor, in that traditional setting where we're used to seeing other doctors going into that kind of setup with, a, for example, like a Victorian household and encountering them. And here we've got, without a doubt, the most working class of all the incarnations of the doctor and just hearing how he gets into it. And it's there's some really nice stuff talking about World War One and the fact that yes. he's alluding yeah. to the time war when they think he's talking about the Great War. And he's not he's not too committal on it, but, you know, things coming out of it and they think, oh, is he some sort of conscientious objector and things like that? And I thought yes. there's some wonderful dialogue in there, really well played and Eccleston downplaying it all. As I think he's not too keen on having too much of the angst from his doctor being brought into it. Not that particularly there was that much angst until we met the Dalek and... And then in his last story, when he sees the Daleks, I don't think there's as much angst around as perhaps some people say, and it's become one of those things of fan-received yes. wisdom. Yes. But actually, yeah. I think it's a fab story. I think it's. I think the Fleshkin are an interesting creation, as we think that they are one thing, but they're very much not what we thought at all. And there's, there's yeah. the wonderful imagery as well, when it's night and they're up in the ramparts of the castle and they're being surrounded in almost like a siege mentality. You can imagine that being shot in that you think of, you take the look of 
the empty child. You can imagine that shooting at night and they're in the yes. castle and there's lights being yeah. you know, going all across the place and there's guns yeah. go off and things like that. And it's yeah. very, very imaginable. You can see it yeah. in your mind's eye. And I like that about it. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think on a whole, the whole set was very easy to visualise. And you're right. I, mean, it, it, I think I said this with the last set. It's very strange to talk about a big finished box set that reflects a, a series that, that, you know, one series that ran, to, you know, Echoes and Zero on, on, on television basically lasted a few months. But I think it's still possible to say that this feels era authentic. And you're so right. The whole, the whole idea of the Ninth Doctor being moody and angsty it only really pops up in a couple of stories when he has these sort of conversations with Rose. Other other times, it's you know it's the big grin and fantastic and all that. So you're right, it's it's ob- and it's obvious that Chris enjoys playing that aspect of it. That that shines through. I mean, he, he shines in this. The interesting thing I liked was how, um, as you say, the they allude to a lot of stuff without crowbarring you over the head, and that's era authentic. You know, they they don't have to spell out all the stuff at the time more because you know they wouldn't have done it at the time. We should probably talk about the, the sort of linking sort of narration it had as well, which, you know, echoed the plot. That was quite a, ni- a nice touch, um, you know, with Annette Badland's character reading the Western novel to the, the other girl who worked in the house. That was really interesting. I'm not sure if they would have done that on TV. It might have been a bit too on the nose, but it was good because it worked quite well to sort of, you know, as a parallel to everything that was actually sort of taking place in the story. And I really liked the way it was sort of, it was resolved when, when Lord Watsy's face was sort of revealed. And, you know, we should say, of course, listeners, Spoiler mode on. If you haven't listened to this, <laughs> we're going to we're going to talk about a lot of obvious pertinent plot points. I like the way it was sort of all played out like that. It was um, it's very very satisfying, very involving, and it was a lovely sort of meta textual moment when the doctor said, "Um, Alice, you know, the the maid girl who wanted to design dresses, he sends her off to London with an basically an introductory letter to so she can go and work for Norman Hartnell." <laughs> <laughs> you know, William Hartnell's real life cousin, which is amazing. So, you know, which basically maybe means that there's a real William Hartnell in the Doctor Who universe. That was hilarious. <laughs> that was really good. Um, very, very clever. Sort of annoying, clever wink that, that didn't really, you know, crowbar you about the face with the cleverness. That was that was really good. Yes, I agree. Uh, that made me laugh out loud properly. Just that you reminded me of it there. I thought it was a really good cast brought together by Barnaby Edwards. Got... Alex Jennings as Lord Hawthorne, good character. I mean, yes, I think quite interesting the fact that he's he is obvious. I think he was it was quite obvious that he was the bad guy of the piece. So yes. I wasn't completely surprised when the big reveal came, the fact that he was an alien hiding his memories. But I yeah. thought it was still a, a really nice touch and, and well played. And the stories go hugely entertaining. And it's one that yes. I listened to in a one Didn't need to stop it or feel the urge to stop it at any point and go back in case I'd yes. missed something. I thought it was a good... Uh-huh straightforward story and sometimes that's just what you need it's very much a bread and butter doctor who and the ending was really good as well when the doctor slips away yes yeah i love that it was properly properly old school like um it reminded me of the end of seeds of death when um commander radnor and everyone turns around and the doctor and jamie and zoe have gone or at the end of delta and the banner men when wise miller and hawk turn around to sort of say thanks doctor because he, for pointing out the satellite that the tardis is already dematerializing i love that i really like the way that the that it was sort of explained who, you know, Lord Hawthorne was, because you knew all along he was the baddie, but you didn't quite know how they were going to explain it. Yeah. Or you suspected all along. So it was really good when that was done. Um, I think it was a it was a cracking wee story. I would say I think it's the tidiest out of the set. It's probably the one that's probably the easiest to listen to without having to rewind bits. 
to kind of clarify. There's not a huge, I mean, one, I'll make a bit of criticism about one of the other stories in a sec. There was a little bit of exposition in the final wheel, but it didn't sort of torpedo it or upend it. It kept a level, which I felt that maybe one of the other stories didn't handle that quite as well. But I thought it was out of the three of them, definitely the tidiest. Definitely the one I can imagine watching 17 times on, on, on videotape before the next episode came on. You know, it was cracking. Excellent. Excellent. I concur. So shall we move a little bit closer to home now, Dave, with The Curse of Lady yes. Macbeth by Lizzie Hopley, yes. where the TARDIS is drawn to Scotland again, to the troubled kingdom of Murray and its Queen Gruach, or, as the Doctor knows her better, Lady Macbeth. While some believe she is the cause of her people's woes, she may yet become their saviour. Dave, did you know much about the real Lady Macbeth at all? Because I knew absolutely not. Well, I'll be honest, not really. I'm a bit of a Shakespeare buff. There's only three of the plays that I haven't seen at all. Which are those? Uh, the Gentleman of Verona, The Noble Kingsman, and one of the Roman ones. I can never remember which one. There's a, quite, there's a few, fair few of them that I've seen more than once. And I've se- I have seen Macbeth twice. Slightly fascinating fact, listeners and fellow Doctor Who fans, is that the second time I saw Macbeth, one thing we talk about in the bonus features on this disc is how a couple of years ago Christopher Eccleston played Macbeth. I think it was for the RSC, and of course, very famously, around about the time he was leaving Doctor Who, David Tennant played Hamlet and then did much ado about nothing with um with Catherine Tate. And we know that um a few uh, of our other sort of favourite actors have, have appeared in sort of similar. I mean, the first time I saw The Merry Lives of Windsor, for example, Christopher Benjamin played Falstaff, that sort of thing. You know, mm-hmm. the second time I saw Macbeth, Macbeth was played by the guy who played Maria Jackson's dad in the Sarah Jane <laughs> <laughs> who I'm sure was a skateboarder. Um, did he have a skateboard when he did it? When you saw it? <laughs> no, okay, no, it wasn't. Um, it wasn't. It was that. It wasn't the point when Emma Willis was in charge of the globe. I bet if man, I bet if she would have had Macbeth on a skateboard. Um, not Emma Willis. I can't. That's not the name. But I know who I mean. No, this was um Joseph Milson, obviously. Um, who played um Maria's dad and Sarah Jane. And I think it was. I want to say it was um. I think Lady Macbeth was played by. I want to say. Hang on. If you're going to say Mina Anwar, then that's just perfect because that's Rani's mum. No, oh, she was played by Samantha Spiro or Spiro. Oh yes, is in the Doctor Falls. Yeah, yeah, she's in the last couple of regular Capaldi episodes alongside um Matt and Pearl, obviously. So she played Lady Macbeth. So it was quite, and I mean this in the best possible way. It was quite a lightweight Macbeth. No skateboards, but it was very accessible. I remember sort of standing there thinking. That's Maria Jackson's dad from Sarah Jane playing Macbeth and just sort of going, isn't the world a marvellous, wonderful place? Now, I've <laughs> seen Macbeth on stage, but Kenny can actually go one better, listeners. I have. I've been Macbeth, as was briefly mentioned in last week's episode. <laughs> yes, Amazing. I did Macbeth at school. I enjoyed that. Yeah, fair is foul and foul is fair. Hover through fog and murky air. I know picturing next year's Power of Three Christmas special. Where we assemble a cast of thousands and do a production of Macbeth. (laughs) (laughs) We're attempting something for the, this is the the Earth 2 podcast plug for the week. We're attempting something with a cast of thousands for the Earth 2 podcast to close out this year. And Tom and Kenny have already recorded their parts. We're having an absolute nightmare recording recording the bulk of it. So it might become a a Burns Night special instead. We'll see what happens. So yes, Macbeth, 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 Macbeth. No, I, but to get back to your point, no, I don't think I really did. Macbeth's a play that I kind of struggle with, to be honest. Really? Um, 
yeah, Michael Fassbender was in a really good movie of it a few years ago, which I, it's one that I think in my head I overcomplicate it more than it actually needs to be. Mm-hmm. It's not one of my favourites. I've seen it a couple of times. I think the second time I saw it, I follow it. I find it quite a tricky one to follow. I think in my head I just overcomplicate the setup more than anything else. It's probably actually a more straightforward play, certainly compared to something like, you know, um, Comedy of Errors or Twelfth Night or something. Twelfth Night is absolute murder. But it's one that I kind of struggle with. But I mean, I genuinely was actually surprised to find out at one point, whenever it was, I found out that Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are actually based on real people. Mm-hmm. I was a bit I surprised. Didn't know that so much. But I mean, if you're going to get someone to play Lady Macbeth and make her as likable, relatable, I don't know, you're not going to get any better than Neve McIntosh. And I'm not just saying that because we went to the same primary school. <laughs> Which was also mentioned in last week's Power of Three. <laughs> Eve McIntosh is brilliant. God bless her. God bless her. So yes, did you, did you, I mean, did you know she was, that Lady Macbeth was a real person? I knew that uh, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth were real people. And I was aware that old shaky, not, I'm talking about William, not Stevens, had given yeah. them a bit of a bad rep. And what was presented in the play was nothing like what they were like, but I'd never Mm. particularly bothered to go and find out why. So I'm really glad that Lizzie Hopley did and gave us a slightly more, well, not slightly more, completely more accurate version of what they were actually like as people, as I really enjoyed this one. This was actually the first one in the set that I listened to because I went straight to it because I quite enjoy Macbeth. It's my favourite Shakespeare. So I went straight to this one. And thought, yep, I need to hear that first. And also because I knew that the lovely Lucy, lovely Lucy Goldie was in it. And uh, she's somebody who is a friend. And I thought, I really, really got to hear this one first. And thoroughly enjoyed it, of course. As listeners found out last week, she got this job with about half an hour before the recording started. Because somebody else had dropped out because of technical problems. And she recorded literally almost like reading it blind. So I think oh. that makes it even more remarkable. And I have oh. to say, I love this story. I really, yes. I think it's the fact that I'm a, I am love Macbeth. And I, when I first did it at school in fourth year, and just took a real shine to it. And it's absolutely my favourite of the of the Shakespeare's. And I, I just was so wrapped up in it i love the fact that there's quite a lot of dark horror in it there's quite a lot of gruesome imagery in there and it's all in the mind's eye Mm. again which i think lizzie's very Mm. good at she's very clever with her use of imagery and things like that yeah and yeah it was i mean i didn't even know that gruch was a real name i for some reason i hadn't even thought about it i just thought oh lady macbeth like you're david Steele, i'm kenny smith and her first name's lady last name macbeth which obviously wouldn't be the case but I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I think, I think out of the three of them in this set, on first listen, it's the one I was most into. And I'll be honest, I kind of, towards the end, I felt it got a little bit too, there was a bit too much baffle gap. I mean, I think sometimes a big finish, they, I don't think they realise that maybe the simplest route is maybe the most satisfying. I felt towards the end, I was having to rewind it a couple of points ago. Sorry, what? Hang on, what? But for the first 15, 20 minutes, I was just like, I was wrapped. I was like, oh, this is fantastic. I can visualise it completely. I was sitting going, you know, I was like, imagine we had another series of Eccleston and Telly and they'd somehow been able to do this. You know, it was very easy to visualise it. 
you know, you can imagine them, you know, standing outside in the mist and all that, and a bit of rain and all that sort of stuff, and everyone reacting to this blue man and being quite scared of him. And would yeah. they film in Scotland? They might not have, but it was sort of um, it was very. You could imagine them in a in a castle lit by torchlight. You could imagine the sort of they make do crash room with the little babies and stuff. You can imagine them projecting onto the wall of the building, you know, using the, the I mean, the, the recurring gag about the home cinema was tremendous. Yes, I don't uh, repeat those words. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I liked it a lot. And it's the only one of the three that I've listened to twice so far because I'd like to take another spin at it before we, we talked about it. I listened to it again today. Yeah. And I, I enjoyed it. I do feel it's, it could have done with, a, you know, a little bit of a smoother final act just because I felt at points I was like, right, hang on, what are they saying? What, you know, what? I suppose it's another form of, of celebrity historical because everyone knows of Macbeth. Everyone knows of the Scottish play. Yeah. You might not know, as we've sort of admitted, not too much about the real people. So it was really interesting. And they talk about it in special features, obviously. The making of this, they talk about how Duncan wasn't how Shakespeare portrayed him and all that yep. sort of stuff. And So it's, you know, good job done and all that. And obviously Eccleston talks himself about, I think he says he was obsessed with the character ever since he was like 17 or something. So that was yeah. really interesting hearing Chris talking about it. Aye, it was all good. It was all good, but I'll say I'll qualify. I enjoyed it hugely. I don't want it to sound like I didn't. I really, really enjoyed it. But I just felt towards the end, I was a little bit, right, what? <laughs> you know, the, doc- the doctor explaining about how they'd sort of been maybe sort of, I can't remember the exact way he put it. They'd maybe been sort of, you know, in hibernation in the sea or whatever. That you mm-hmm. compare them to the coconuts and all that. That went really well, but I think it just got a little bit overcomplicated in the final act. And I just thought, thought, no, you could have maybe told this a bit more straightforwardly, and I wouldn't have to, you know, rewind the last thirty seconds just to kind of clarify it. But but maybe that's just me. But no, I, I don't want it to sound like I didn't enjoy it. I thought it was tremendous. Chris was brilliant. Neve was amazing. I mean, she was just totally, totally owned it. Absolutely the best person for it. And I think she probably would have been glad to to be doing something else for them that wasn't Madame Vastra. You know, it was yeah. probably, I'm sure she probably quite enjoyed to go doing something a bit different. Yeah. I mean, I thought the first scene was great because we expect it's yeah. going to be the three witches. And then it's turned on its head very quickly as soon as the doctor arrives and realised, hang on, that's not what it is. That's what, And I think that was quite a nice... A nice wee twist. We sort of we're given what we expect it to be, but it isn't at all. And I quite yes. like that sort of wee things. And I do like the wee nods that appear throughout to what we expect from Shakespeare. Yeah, and it sort of like inverts yeah, it um, almost. Yeah, I mean it, it's not over overly burdened and over overly stuffed with you know Shakespeare references. I mean, I remember Unicorn and the Wasp was on TV, and part of the fun was spotting all the different Agatha Christie story titles that Gareth got, and then obviously the Shakespeare Code has a few allusions and a couple of quotes and stuff in it yeah um which is fine so i mean this this one obviously had a couple as well but they're quite more specific to the story so it was um i think it was good that they resisted the temptation to to fill it with references and quotes and you know if they'd had a set of twins that were dressed up as another set of twins or something it would have been completely over the score but they resisted that sort of urge it was well disciplined to a point i feel you know as i keep laboring i just felt the, the ending could have been landed a little bit better and good cast again. It's obviously mentioned mm-hmm. Neve, Anthony Howe doing a decent stab at a Scots accent, and I think it gave a give a good Macbeth. I fully believe that everyone taking part, obviously apart from the doctor himself, was was you know genuinely Scottish. It didn't sound like anyone was gonna was putting it on. So it was um it was quite good from that point of view. Yeah. Very enjoyable. Yeah, absolutely. It's one that I've listened to twice, like yourself, and I'm sure that I'll be giving it a third listen before too long again something we've mentioned before that when we were talking about Dalek Universe how we'd listen to volume one or or we'd do the the prequel 
and then do volume one and then before volume two comes out listen to it again then before volume three comes out do one two and yeah. all ready for it and then yeah. i still haven't done the complete run yet which I probably should do but I might get that done over yeah. christmas yeah my current recreational big finish listening is that i'm listening i interrupted with this box set obviously and Kenny tells me at the point of recording that the next poem gun box set, the new set of Stranded is actually out tomorrow so that'll probably be the next thing to listen to but my recreational big finish listening recently has been um, some more of the Lucy Miller stories which I haven't heard for I haven't heard before so that's quite good I'm sure you'll know them inside out and back to the front but I've just been doing them for the first time Joe I really enjoyed the, the Eight Truths World Wide Web sort mm-hmm. of season three finale story that was excellent I mean it's not what we're talking about today but I'm just saying yeah. that was marvellous absolutely that was- 10 out of 10 that was tremendous yeah and because we know that she never misses an episode we'd like to wish Sheridan Smith a speedy recovery after her recent car accident as well oh god I hadn't heard about that that's terrible yeah I would like to wish her um, I would like to wish her all the best and a speedy recovery from a recent duet with Carrie Barlow <laughs> oh god <laughs> it didn't make much of an impression on me I must admit that's the thing listeners that's the biggest take that fan you know my despair about the current state of everything to that or doing almost equals my despair about something else that I could mention that I won't. But anyway, <laughs> right. Shall we move on to yes, indeed. Move on to Monsters in Metropolis? Indeed, Monsters right. in Metropolis sounds like an issue of Superman, quite frankly. It does, actually. It does. I mean, here we go to Berlin, 1927, the making of a science fiction legend. But death stops the film set and history is not what the Doctor expects it to be. And this new machine man is a more terrifying vision of humanity's future than Fritz Lang had in mind. Are you a big fan of Metropolis, Dave? Ken, I've never seen it. Really? That's interesting. See, I've not seen it since (laughs) I borrowed a copy from our friend Mark Doherty, and this must have been early to mid-90s, and that was obviously an edited version, and since then... Mm. They've recovered more of the footage that was lost and cut until they found, yeah. I think, is that a 95% complete copy in Argentina, which hopefully yeah. I'm going to get for Christmas, which I have asked for because I feel inspired to watch it again well, after um, listening to this. I'll take a loan of that from you after Christmas then. No, I've never seen that. I've got a feeling it's the sort of thing my former flatmate Ross probably would have had, I'm sure. I'm mm. familiar with it like everyone else. Like the character of the very C3PO, I mean, the Metropolis casts a huge shadow. Very, very influential. I mean, um, obviously, C3PO was obviously visually influenced by um, the robot lady. And a version of the robot lady, a character called Mechanique, turned up in the DC comic All-Star Squadron, mm-hmm. um, which Peter and I probably talk about in the podcast in about four years, I reckon, at the current rate, maybe a bit longer. So, you know, I'm familiar with it. It's, you know, it's, a, it's obviously a very important text. It's one of these ones that I've read a lot about, but never actually seen. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'll... Something I probably should do something about that actually. Hmm. Well, there we go. Hopefully, after Christmas, then I'll be able to help you out with that one. Magic. Hopefully, Santa's listening and we'll hear that as well, just to remind him. Yes, hello, Santa. If you're listening, can I get some? Can I get some shoes, please? (laughs) So, it's quite a brilliant idea, isn't it? That classic sci-fi icon, and all of a sudden, the robot is replaced by a Cyberman, and just think, what a brilliant idea that is. Yeah, because I think obviously the design of the of the famous robot from Metropolis, you know, is obviously has to have had an impact. I would say maybe the especially the sort of two thousand six David Tennant Cybermen. They mm. they really they've obviously been influenced by the design of um. Is it is it called Mechanique? That's what I was thinking. Oh, of. That's I, what for I some reason of. I always thought it was called Maria. I don't know why. I'm not sure. I don't know what she's called in the film. So I mean, I always think of it as Mechanique because that's what Roy Thomas called her when he, he yeah. stole her for all stars. 
All-Star Squadron listeners being uh, a comic set during World War II featuring all the Golden Age DC superheroes, just in case you're wondering, you probably will. The influence on, on the, the design of the Cybermen is palpable, I think. So it was, it's a brilliant, simple, straightforward idea. What if, you know, as you say, and she was replaced by a Cyberman, and it was terrific. I wouldn't be surprised if, if we get a sequel to this story because um, we didn't find out where the Cyberman came from. It was a very, very interesting situation where the Cyberman, its human side, was sort of was re-establishing itself. And that, that was really, really interesting. I think the closest we've had to that before was when Wee Davy and his tuxedo, you know, opens up a Cyberman in an episode of which I think is called The Age of Steel. I could That's be wrong. Name. Great name for an episode. It's good that Russell T. Davis both gave us um stories with her with her surnames in the title, isn't it? Of course. I hadn't thought of that. Can't think of a single Doctor episode with the word Harris in the title, to be honest. So there you go. <laughs> Make it what you will. It was interesting that the, the Doctor sort of talking, if you like, to the, the human side of Cyberman, because I, I think, to be honest, when they did it on telly, I remember me you know, and a couple of folks sort of sniggering at the Cyberman remembering his wedding, which is horrible, <laughs> but it was just a bit corny. This was done very, very well. It was very interesting. Like The Cyberman obviously being manipulated by the, the little guy whose name I've forgotten, obviously, even though I only listened to it last night, which is terrible. You really felt sorry for the Cyberman, which was very interesting. Yeah, the fact it's been used, as you said, yes, I thought it was fab. I mean, what what are your thoughts on it? I really enjoyed it. I think the fact that there's the there's the undertones there of particularly what's coming um, in the future, when the fact that Dieter is sort of fighting back against what's happened to Germany after the Great War, with all the, the economic problems that there are in Germany that have been enforced upon it, and yeah. how it, with the war reparations and such like, and yes. showing, you know, pretty much what was happening with the average working man in the street and the resentment yes. that was felt towards the rest of the world. And Both, yeah. in doing yeah. so, we've got Dieter using the Cyberman for his own ends to try and bolster himself, get himself more money at a time when there was, I suppose, 1927, the Great Depression would still be ongoing around this time, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think so, yeah. And... I mean, we tend to think of the 1920s as the Roaring Twenties with all this wonderful imagery of, you know, Art Deco buildings, you know, bright lights at night and everything looking really stylish and beautifully designed. Yeah. But of course, yeah. this is when people were struggling to pay for things. You think of what we saw in Daleks in Manhattan and such like, and we yes. learned that there's places like Hooverville and such like. And right. it's very, very good at representing what the average person in the street was feeling. And then, of course... Add into the mix, we've got the character of Anna Dreyfus, or Dreyfus, who is evidently Jewish, and the doctor's warning her to basically get the hell out of here. And I thought that was really sensitively done. I think Helen Goldwyn giving one of her best Big Finish performances, and she's given a load of great ones. But this one, I thought the part was really good foil for Eccleston's doctor. And I think the fact that the doctor knows what's coming, and he's quite paternal to her. What did you think, Dave? Yeah, I was absolutely. I mean, I mean, in the nicest possible way. I don't know if Helen listens to the podcast, but Helen was unrecognisable. I did not. I was really surprised when I listened to it because I've listened to loads of stuff that she's in, you know, Atta Girl and quite a lot of other stuff that she's been involved in. So I didn't pick up that it was her. She was phenomenal, really, really good. It was handled, as you say, very discreetly, very carefully. The doctor sort of advising her to, you know, to get out of Dodge, as it were. Handled very, very intelligently, I suppose, as well, because it, it, no, it didn't, they didn't have to spell it out. It was sort of left implicit. It was very, very well done. And she, you know, she was obviously a good sort of surrogate companion for the Doctor for this story. 
Um, I think the sort of surrogate companions of this box set felt a lot less obviously like surrogate companions than maybe, you know, in the, the other sets. So that was kind of, that was done very well. It's an interesting sort of thing, though. It's like, I, don't, I mean, I haven't, I remember studying the Second World War and all that sort of stuff at school. And I think I think one of my hires is in economic history, actually. And mm -hmm. it's interesting, the whole thing about the way that, um, the lack of foresight when Germany was made to pay all the, the war reparations after the First World War, which definitely contributed to to the Second World War happening. It's it's with a you know the with the miracle of hindsight, it's it's fascinating to sort of look back and at this period and just think about everything that was 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 still to come because there's obviously points when the Helen's character picks up and some of the stuff that the doctor says because he's not paying attention or he's been a bit careless and we know what he's talking about, but she's obviously right, you know, what are you going on about here? Yeah. So you're quite relieved at the end when he encourages her to to leave Germany and all that sort of stuff. You're sort of going right good because, you know, by this point you like her character and you don't want anything awful to happen to her. Done very, very sensitively. Yeah, very well yeah. done. And Nick Briggs is the Cyberman is just, you just think you've heard it all from Cybermen and then it just takes yeah. us to a new level. And just that final image of the Doctor sitting in a cinema yes. watching Metropolis with a Cyberman, <laughs> it's just the most yeah. ridiculous image but it works. It was wonderful. And you again, you felt you felt really sorry. I mean, I, I remember I, would, I was out on a walk, sort of listening to that one, and I kind of stopped, not to the same extent that I stopped in my tracks at Dalit Universe or Doom Coalition, but I kind of stopped in my tracks and kind of went, oh, because, you know, like, no, Cyberman's dying, and it's almost like the Doctor's taking it to the pictures as a last little treat, and you're sort of going, wow. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, you can imagine that on the telly as well, like, a shot of the of the movie playing on the cinema screen and then the camera panning along the empty seats to show the Doctor and the Cyberman sort of sat there with the light kind of flickering over them. And mm -hmm. as I said earlier on, this was a very easy set to visualise. We should talk about Nick Wilton playing Fritz Lang. And I remember him from loads of kids' TV comedy stuff in the 80s and stuff, so it was great Same. to hear him sort of getting a crack and, and, and doing a great job. Again, another kind of celebrity historical. It was another really, I mean, it was Dorney, obviously, so we should say that, remember John Dorney, hashtag Dorney delivers. So, I mean, obviously, it's the everything that was done was kind of going to have a really good emotional intelligence to it, but it was, it was really good at perfect end to the set. I mean, it was, um, I think, I'm if I haven't said it already, I think I have, um, this is out, out of the, the three Ninth Doctor sets we've had, this is definitely the one I've enjoyed the most on first listen. I didn't find myself sort of going what <laughs> quite as often, and I felt stories were just a little felt a little bit tighter and tidier than the last set, and it, and it's just so obvious that he's enjoying it. Even just hearing him talk on the bonus features, you can tell that he's utterly committed. He talks about the TV series; he doesn't shy away from it. He's quite frank about it, but at the same time, it's obvious that while it, it may not have gone the way he wanted to, he doesn't. It's obvious he hasn't completely hated it because he still talks about it fondly. You know some of the stuff. It was, a, it was another pleasure. I mean, when's, when's the next one? Is there four sets in this way? February. Yeah. I'm actually and working then, uh, on the Vortex preview uh, tonight, uh, Dave. So it's it's that well, surreal well, world, then. having just listened to set three. In fact, I'd started the preview for set four without even having heard any of set three. So it's a very, <laughs> my head is like all ninth Doctor Doubts. It's definitely wibbly wobbly, timey wimey. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what I was going to say. Um, number nine, number nine. So as, as we say this, as we record this, listeners, I am about, an hour and a half away from finishing the Beatles Get Back on Disney Plus. There's a bit of context of where the album is all taking place. So yes, number nine, number nine, very appropriate. I know it's in a white album, but you know what I mean. So um 
Have you, been, have you watched any of the Beatles get? You're not a Beatles fan, really. Are I'm you? not. I'm. I'm, in, I'm interested to see it because the, even just like the, the picture restoration looks amazing. But I've just been going through Loki this week and finally getting round to finishing it uh-huh. before I make a start on Hawkeye. Hawkeye, the new. Yeah, yeah. Um, I haven't watched this week's Hawkeye yet because I, I went to see um, House of Gucci this afternoon. So I might leave Hawkeye for tomorrow. Mm. We'll see. Yeah, she couldn't see House of Gucci. Everyone, it's very good. Lady Gaga's tremendous and. Jared Leto's tremendous, Adam Driver's tremendous, and Al Pacino's tremendous. So there you are. But anyway, yeah, back to the plots. The, ne- the next Ninth Doctor set about in February, so yes, we look forward to that very much. So I want um, have they released very many details about that one yet? I think it's been confirmed that we are back in Scotland in that set. Oh, really? That's interesting. Doubtless we'll do another episode in February, I'm sure. When, when Absolutely. And of course, yeah. with it, with having more Scottish content, it means an extra bonus episode of interviews and chat and stuff. <laughs> I mean, you could probably get a Scottish Fields article out of it as well, couldn't you? If you if you felt oh like yes, it. that's on the cards. That would be on the cards. I'll probably reuse an inter- reuse the interview from Brilliant. the writer. So yes, that should be fun. Excellent. I did enjoy the um the one about the the Batman inspired whiskey. That was good. <laughs> but any, listeners, if you read Ken, if you read Kenny's article about the the Batman inspired whiskey, it might give you an idea of what may be forthcoming in the the hopefully if we get it recorded. Augmented episode of the Off Two podcast, but if we don't, then it doesn't matter. <laughs> Do you know what? All of a sudden, actually, now I think about it, I want the next Night Doctor set to be filmed, to be filmed, to be set in Glasgow <laughs> with with a full cast of Glaswegian actors that call everybody a <laughs> and <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. Set it in Govan Hill, so that you know we have to translate. That'd be tremendous. Yeah, we could bring it out with subtitles on the CD release. But yes, all in all, I, I really enjoyed this set. I've enjoyed everything Eccleston's done so far. And the fact that yes. we know we've got another series, which has just finished recording, yes. as was announced by Big Finish recently. And yes. there's some great stuff coming up. And I cannot wait to start on the Vortex previews. It's good times. I mean, I'm still not pinching myself quite as much as I was when I was listening to the first set, but I'm listening to it and I'm going, on a level, I still can't believe we're actually, you know, he's actually doing it, and he just—it's—it's it's really gratifying just to to listen and know that he's he's on board and he's into it and he's happy, and it's just—it's phenomenal. Never thought the day would come, and as I keep saying, it feels so era authentic to what you know, three and a half months, sixteen years ago. Mm-hmm. It's tremendous stuff, and long may it continue. Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. So, listeners, if you've listened to this set and have any thoughts. Why don't you send us a tweet on Twitter at Power of Three? That's number three pod rather than being written out in full, and share us your thoughts. So it's pretty much time for us to go now. So it's goodbye from me, Kenny, and it's goodbye from me, David. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you. We'll see you again very soon. Um, I'm going to ask Kenny because I'm not really sure. Kenny, what are we going to play out with today? Well, Dave, I'm glad you asked me that. Given that the Doctor is called a blue man in the curse of Lady Macbeth. And there's quite a lot of references to to other blue men. And given that he probably wears a blue jumper in this, I'm quite keen to go with the rather fantastic Sebastian Bohm cover version of New Order's Blue Monday as featured in Wonder Woman 1984.